Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The Pharisees had set a trap for Jesus. They really thought they had him in a no-win situation. They were so proud of themselves, they were so smart that he was dead in the water no matter what. So they started to lay it on really thick. We know you're an honest man, that you teach according to the truth without regard to anyone's opinion. And then they said, is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? What could Jesus say? If he said it's not lawful to pay the tax, he'd be instantly arrested by the Romans. He'd be part of the rebel party, the enemy of Rome and all the rest. And if he said that it was lawful to pay the tax, he'd be exposed as a supporter of the pagans, not a true Jew, but a collaborator with the Romans. They thought they had him this time. And Jesus reveals the wisdom of God. He says, show me a coin. Whose image? Whose inscription is this? And Caesar's, they said. And then he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The demands of God and the demands of Caesar are not side by side. Sometimes we think that it's really that way. Well, it's a little bit for God and it's a little bit for Caesar. We've got to find the right balance. And it isn't that. It's actually the demands of God, the belonging to God is foundational to everything. It's more like a stacked relationship and everything belongs to God. Everything we've received comes from God. Everything belongs to God. And above that is love of neighbor. That's where Caesar fits in. And we take care of our neighbor. We, we take care of those demands of the government as are needed. And so it's really that way. It's a different relationship. That's the faith. God wants us to give ourselves entirely to him, which is the faith. And we take care of our neighbors, our brothers and sisters as best we can. Now, the Jews didn't want to admit it, but they benefited from the Romans. They benefited from the aqueducts bringing water to the city. They benefited from the Roman road system. They benefited in many ways. In fact, it was under the patronage of the Romans that Herod the Great had built the great expansion of the temple in Jerusalem. So they benefited in so many ways, even though they chafed under the Romans. But God is the foundation of our lives. Knowing him and loving him guides all of our decisions, the love of God and the love of neighbor. And from God and his church, we come to know the truth, which we apply to all the decisions of our lives. We see our dignity as images of God, brothers and sisters to one another. And because we live in a republic, we have a say in who we elect and what laws we pass. In all these decisions, we have the natural law and the teachings of the church to guide us. Now, in our United States, our Constitution, Bill of Rights, they set out the basis for all the laws in our country. Our founding fathers based these documents upon basic Christian tenets, upon human dignity, upon nature and nature's God, they said. And so why are just laws so critical? Because the law itself is a teacher. Laws teach us what is expected of us. Laws shape human behaviors. Laws help form the culture. Good laws point the way to justice and to virtue. Bad laws corrupt behavior and promote vice. Bad laws corrupt a culture. Bad laws even undermine clear thinking. You see that all around us today. So how do we know these principles that go into making a good law? Well, we have natural law, much maligned today, but it's still there and it's very powerful witness. And we also have the teachings of the church. We learn these principles, especially from Jesus and the church and a serious Catholic education. We need that, which is why we have a very solid Catholic school. But it's the church that reminds us of our dignity as images of God. Therefore, the fundamental right to life. The founding fathers knew this. Without the right to life, nothing else matters. No other rights matter. If you don't have the right to life, nothing else matters. And that's why it's so significant that it's the first right 
and the necessary one and the foundation of all of the others. If we lose the right to life, we don't just lose it for the unborn. Did you know that in Belgium, a country that had abortion ahead of us, they also have had euthanasia ahead of us. Did you know that in Belgium, there's more involuntary euthanasia than voluntary? More people are being put down like a dog. More people have involuntary euthanasia than voluntary. Did you know the elderly in Belgium are afraid to go to the hospital? The hospitals have very few elderly. They're afraid to go there. They've lost the right to life, and it doesn't just affect the unborn. So the church's teaching in this matter, coming from both natural law and from divine revelation, is significant. And again, the church reminds us of these things. It's the church that brought about, through his great call to chastity, monogamy. One man and one woman united in marriage for the protection of women, the development of the nuclear family, because the marriage of husband and wife is the reflection of the love of Christ and his bride, the church. The church founded this nuclear family. The church called for it, sustained it, developed it, and promoted the change throughout the world based on that marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. The chastity that is required of us sustains the family, sustains the culture. And the church gives us that. So many secular voices want to sweep that all away. The church, in her social teachings, reminds us of the right to private property, the right to labor unions, the right to a just wage, and to avoid the perils of communism and socialism, which bring about immorality, loss of the rights of all of those things we mentioned here. It's significant the church is guiding us, teaching us. The church is helping us to prosper. And the church reminds us that the work of government is justice. The work of the church is charity. Boy, have we got that backwards. We've got the government doing charity, the church trying to do justice, completely upside down, completely backwards now. These are just a few examples that understand the great blessing the teaching of the church is to us and to all mankind. Now, our country, in its laws and in its culture, is divided over these most basic issues. It can be seen just in the last week in the Senate hearings over Amy Coney Barrett, who was nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court. Amy Coney Barrett is a brilliant lawyer, a married woman, a mother of seven. She's also a devout Catholic, and the firestorm erupted the moment she was nominated. No one would oppose her if she was a pro-choice Catholic, if she were a personally opposed Catholic, but would never let her faith shape her thinking. She'd find no opposition then. But the fact that she really believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that she's a faithful Catholic, brings bitter opposition. One senator said, the dogma lives loudly in you. The senator meant that as a body slam. I would take that as high praise. That's what was said of her. The interviews, she showed herself with warmth and charm and revealed an authentic believer. And she actually makes the faith attractive. It's a wonderful thing. And the opposition to Amy Coney Barrett looks dark and ugly. The opposition is dark and ugly. And you find that again and again in one interview after another. They clearly reveal the cultural divide is over abortion and all the lifestyle choices that lead up to it and flow from it. How significant is the way we see the world? One political party is devoted to abortion, the so-called women's health care or choice. That same party in its very platform stands for unlimited abortion all the way up to the birth of the child and beyond. That same party defends the redefinition of marriage and practically every other immoral lifestyle. This is the cultural divide. 
We saw the entire election played out in the last week over the nomination of one Supreme Court justice. The other party and its leader that proposed Amy Coney Barrett is devoted to the defense of life and has proven it by actions. You and I need to pay attention to that. The news media aren't going to be our friends in this. Assuming we have a well-formed conscience, we need the truth in order to begin to evaluate these things. And once our conscience is in place, we feed the truth to it in order to make a decision. Again, the news media have been particularly dishonest in almost everything these last four years. Constant exposure to a dishonest media. All of this helps to form opinions, almost without our knowledge. Be careful what you watch. Be careful how you allow yourself to be inundated with message after message. You know, it was Hitler long ago who said, tell a lie big enough, long enough, often enough, and people will begin to believe it. Be careful what you watch. Be careful of these media outlets. In fact, just this last week, Twitter and Facebook have been charged not only with censorship, but using censorship to politically support their own candidate. That's every bit as dishonest as we expect to find in China, communist China, and every other totalitarian country. These are not good signs. These great, these great media conglomerates have to be broken up. They have to be challenged. They cannot be allowed to continue these policies. I was visiting one man in a nursing home, and he was sitting there watching the news all day, and he was having a heated argument with the television, cursing all the while. And I realized this man was watching the media so heavily, he'd lost all perspective. He'd been malformed by his own watching of the media. Be careful. It's very important what we watch and how we watch it. You have to want the truth. You have to search for sources you can trust. Now, how do we bring this together in making decisions about who to vote for? Who will stand up for the lives of the unborn children? It's going to be issue number one. It's absolutely core. Don't fall into the trap that thinking it's one issue among many others. The U.S. bishops called abortion the preeminent issue to be considered beyond all others and before all others. Without the right to life, nothing else matters. Many other issues concerning justice are complex. Their causes, their effects on people, and people of goodwill can prudentially see them in different ways. The right to life is first. And the abortion unquestionably kills an innocent human being. Very significant. What about the death penalty? People want to put that almost as though it's on a par. The death penalty is not intrinsically evil. It is not always and everywhere wrong. And by way of proportion, last year across the nation in all of the states, 22 people were executed under capital punishment, 22 people. Last year, 860,000 abortions took place. Every one of those babies was innocent. The proportion is lost altogether. It's that significant. Which candidate and which party will allow for our religious freedoms? Very significant. Who will allow us to practice our faith openly? Who won't force us to pay for abortion and sterilization? Who won't force us to comply with the current errors concerning human sexuality and gender? And again, big tech monopolies such as Twitter and Facebook have blocked stories that would be hurtful to their favorite candidate. And this is censorship, undermines our freedom that a democracy requires. When weighing these issues as a Catholic, we must consider proportionality. A Catholic could vote for a candidate espousing many of these things if there was some proportionate reason to do so. Is there? In my mind, 
There is no proportionality. There is no reason to justify that. What do you have to do to balance out 860,000 direct killings per year, which attack the very foundations of the Republic? You remember the movie Trial at Nuremberg. That was the one that dealt with all of the things the Nazis had done, horrendous things. In that movie, we find a couple of great actors. Burt Lancaster was one of the, the Nazi judges. And he says, we never thought it would come to this. And again, we find Spencer Tracy making the reply, and he says, the first time you killed an innocent man, it came to this. Well, we've killed 60 million, 60 million, and exported these ideals out to the rest of the world through Planned Parenthood and through population programs that we have attached to, to every foreign aid program. We've expanded this great evil. It's absolutely that critical that it be number one and that we challenge it. Jesus wants us to recognize what really counts. Now, in all of these matters, remember these things of time are passing. Nations, presidents, wars, courts, stock markets, all of these things have their place and they will all fade. Keep your eyes on the things that matter most. On God, your marriage, your family, your conscience, keep your conscience pure, your abilities and your time. Whatever you entrust to God will inquire a lasting value. Then shape the world around you. We have this responsibility to fight against laws that destroy life from the womb to the tomb. And we have a responsibility to change systems that enslave or one that creates dependency or one that undermines marriage and family. That's how we can render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. 